You're listening to Soul Roadmap with Dina Cataldo, episode 56. Welcome to Soul Roadmap Podcast. Each week, you'll hear strategies and inspiration to take action and live life better. Hi, I'm Dina Cataldo, lawyer, coach, and entrepreneur. This podcast is your roadmap to creating more success in your life, business, and relationships. Let's get started. Hello, my friend. I am so excited to introduce you to my new friend who has an inspiring story that will move you to take action to make the change you need most in your life. Before we get started today, I want to encourage you to go to my website if you haven't already, dinacataldo.com. There you will find free resources to help you take action in any of your endeavors. Whether you're a lawyer or any other driven professional or entrepreneur, you're going to find free resources on the homepage as well as under the resources tab. And if you're ready for even more, I have a work with me tab that outlines the self-guided one-on-one coaching programs that I have available for you. And I'll be launching another round of the Lawyer's Soul Roadmap group coaching program in the next couple of months. So if you want to be the first to hear when that comes out and when I have a new free masterclass, be sure to sign up for updates there too. Okay, let's talk a bit more about today's episode and my guest, Michael O'Brien. If you're anything like me, you're going to hear a lot of yourself in his story. I was taught to value the grind of hard work, and it took huge life events for each of us, which we talk about during our conversation, to shake things up in our lives for the better. Not only does Michael share an inspiring story, which he gets into in detail in our conversation and even more so in his book, Shift, Creating Better Tomorrows, Winning at Work and in Life, but he shares some practical tools that each of us can implement right now to make our lives better. We talk about the mindset shifts that he had to make to redesign his life and how you can use these same tools in your life. And I'll link to his book in the show notes at dinacataldo.com forward slash 56. All of the proceeds go to World Bicycle Relief, mobilizing people through the power of bicycles. They help people all over the globe bridge the distance in rural areas to get to more educational, economic, and healthcare opportunities. So I think it's a very worthy cause. He and I would both love it if you could tag us on Instagram in your stories. Maybe take a pic of you listening to the podcast and you can tag us at Michael O'Brien Shift and at Dina.Cataldo. He does a great job introducing himself. So let's just go right into our conversation. Good morning, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Dana. Thanks for having me. Listen, I've been looking forward to this all week. So I'm totally stoked. Oh, to sweet. Yeah. I'm totally that. pumped. Yeah. So from the first time we chatted, mm-hmm. I was like, this is a woman that I want to connect with. So because oh. um, I think you're doing like amazing stuff. And yeah, I'm thrilled. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. And you know, when we started talking, you know, I read your book, Shift, and I knew that we have a lot of commonalities and a lot of, you know, our messages are similar, but you have a very unique way of 
sharing your story. And I can't wait to share that with people today. So I'm, cool. awesome. I'm super stoked. Cool. Okay. Can you just introduce yourself a little bit to the people listening? Sure. I'm a father of two awesome daughters who are 18 and 21, which I have a hard time believing because <laughs> uh, they are still my little girls, but now they're women. I'm married 25 years, so great marriage. And then I'm also, by profession, an executive coach and a speaker. And you referenced my book, so I'm an author. But before this wonderful world of helping executives show up differently at work, I spent 22 years in corporate America from roles as individual contributor, sales rep, to the head of North America for a Japanese multinational company. So I had the US, Canada, and Mexico. So I've seen everything in corporate America from the lowest levels to the executive suite and points in between. And now because of my last bad day, which we'll get into, I know, I try to help other people have their last bad day. So which is, I think, um, part of the reason why I live that day. Part of what I really enjoy about your message in the book and you know the conversations that we've had is creating that shift in identity that we have. And it's an unconscious identity for the most of us. For so many years, we work really hard. And I know, you know lawyers listening and other professionals listening can relate to this is we are taught that the harder we work, the more successful we will become, but we never actually think about, okay, what does success mean to us personally? And what does that look like in our life? And how do we feel? So I know we're going to be touching on some of that today. Absolutely. And that was a big part of my story is that I was following the script that I thought society wanted me to follow. You know, you work your butt off in high school to get to the, the, the college you go to the college, you get your degree, and then you find the job, and then you you know find the girl and marry the girl and start a family and work your way up the corporate ladder. And that's what society wants you to do. And I was following that, but I wasn't necessarily like living my life with any type of consciousness, to your point. You know, it's more of this unconscious, like, okay, that's what you do. And for me, that just wasn't fulfilling. And then, yes, that big life event really was that day where everything changed when I realized, hey, you can live by a different script. And, you know, not to tease listeners too much about your last bad day, but I just want to give some context for this because I think it makes such an important distinction between your life before and your life after. And I want to just kind of get a taste of what your feelings were before and your feelings were after about what you were doing and how you were showing up in your life. Yeah, great question, Dina. So if you had met me before my accident, like life on the surface, right? If we had LinkedIn back then or Facebook and you did like some cyber stalking, you'd be like, hey, this guy seems to have a good career. And I did. I was the product manager for our company's biggest product. So I had a high profile job. My daughters were three and a half years old and seven months old at the time, married seven years. So, you know, nice house. By all pictures, it looked like, hey, living the American dream. Looks all good. But what was happening privately? Because uh, my story isn't, you know, living down by the river in a trailer, right? That's not like I went to a good school, had a good gig, had a good family. But what I was doing privately was playing Superman at work because... I was a leader and I thought leaders are supposed to have all the answers. 
And I was playing Superman at home because I was the provider and I was the patriarch. I was the dad. I was the husband. And I thought, well, they have to have all the answers too at home. So here I was playing Superman and playing Superman. That's a tough gig. And I wasn't really cut out for it. (laughs) None of us are. And what I was doing was pouring a lot of stress inside of me. But I was pretending, maybe it's the fake it till you make it, but I wasn't making it. Like, I'm good. I'm chill. I'm relaxed. I'm all good, right? (laughs) I got this, right? But privately, I was just pouring the stress inside, pouring the stress inside. And I was doing this whole chasing happiness thing that I see so many people do, even today in 2019, where there's sort of the sentence, I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when I get promoted, I'll be happy when I get out of college, I'll be happy when I get my first job, I'll be happy when I buy that car, I'll be happy when whatever is over or whenever happens. And I was happy, like I bought that new car and I was happy for a moment. And then I realized that car is really expensive to maintain. And it was a vapor finish line. And I got happy like after I got promoted multiple times, but then I realized, well, more levels, more devils. And then I went back to chasing happiness. So I was doing all this happiness chasing instead of just being happy and almost pulling out of a a page from Zig Ziglar, this do have be way of living where the do is, we call it now like the hustle and grind, right? You know, like you got to work, you know, 24, seven, 365, do, do, do. You're on your hamster wheel. And and you're doing all that to have stuff, status, promotions, material goods. And then, but only then will you be whatever. You'll be a leader, be happy, be grateful, fill in the blank. You can do it. And I was doing that do have be way of living my life, but I was doing it privately. And I didn't want to share it really with anyone that I was like, hey, I got all the stress building up. And you know this, you know, with the people you serve and just, we all know it. Like if you pour enough gunk in your vessel, sooner or later, it's going to go somewhere. And for me, it literally and figuratively went somewhere. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. That was exactly how I was doing in my life. (laughs) Like it was, you know, before pre-cancer, that's exactly my mindset. So can you share with us this last bad day, I think we've teased it enough. And then we're yes, gonna- we'll give everyone what the day is. They're like, what is this day? <laughs> so we had a meeting, a, a pretty traditional company offsite meeting that many of your listeners have been to in the past. You fly out to somewhere. In this case, it was rural New Mexico in between Santa Fe and Albuquerque. You fly out on Monday, you fly back home on Friday. And in between, they're going to try to torture you with PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. And I thought, all right, well, New Mexico... I had this bucket list thing or living list thing of riding my bike in every one of the states. I had not crossed off New Mexico yet. So I was like, I'm going to bring my bike out. I was training for a race and I thought I was going to be really smart. I would avoid the hotel gym. I would be the smartest guy at the meeting. And I found this great loop out the back of the hotel up the main drag was two miles. But if I did 10 laps, 20 miles, and I can go into the meeting all smug and be like, yeah, I worked out. I rode my bike outside. What did you guys do? You slept it's in. It's like an accomplishment, right? Like we always have to like one up that. Yeah, other- it was totally like one up. Like I brought my bike. You, know, you guys just brought your golf clubs. You know, <laughs> you're not even going to walk the course. I was going to be like all like, you know, I'm the athlete, right? And on that fourth lap, I came around the bend. And what was staring right at me, charging right at me, was a Ford Explorer. It had crossed the center line of the road. He was fully in my lane, as you know, Dina. And he was not moving. 
I looked up. I was like, he's going to see me. He's going to see me. He's going to move. And he never moved. And I remember the sound of me hitting his grill. And then the sound I made as I went through the windshield, I broke a hole through the windshield, the screech of his brakes. And then the thud I made when I came to the asphalt below. And I got knocked unconscious, as everyone could imagine. But I did do this, like when I regained my consciousness, all the EMTs were around. So I was very fortunate, call it universe, call it God, call it whatever. EMTs were at the hotel that we were staying at. So I was able to get care pretty quickly. I was only about a quarter of a mile away from the hotel at the point in time. And when I regained my consciousness and I could tell like, one, I was in the worst pain of my life. Just the thought of moving was painful. And I could tell I was seriously hurt. And obviously really confused and disoriented. But I did ask this question that only another cyclist can truly appreciate. I asked AMT, like, how's my bike? <laughs> so any cyclist out there listening will know, like, yeah, that's the question that we always ask. And it was my attempt, as pitiful as it is, to cut the tension in the situation with a little humor. Because I knew things were grim. And not by what the EMTs were saying or not saying. It was just, you could feel it in the air. They had a lot of concern. And I was like, this is not how the story is supposed to play out. This is not the script. And I just remember willing myself not to fall asleep because I thought if I fell asleep or lost consciousness, really, that I would lose control over the situation. And Eventually, they called the helicopter to bring me to the trauma center at Albuquerque, the University of New Mexico. And as I got put onto the helicopter for my 19-minute flight, I told myself, if you live, life is going to be different. You're going to stop chasing happiness. You know, when you said that bit about this wasn't supposed to be the script, like this was not supposed to be it, that is the control that we think we have over our life just personified. Oh, yeah. I was so, you know, I was, there was a mixture of emotions, as one can imagine, like there was like, scared to death, you know, talk about fear, like, that's real fear. But I was also angry. I was like, no, the script, I was following the script, I was doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing. And then this happened. And it wasn't like a, you know, life before my eyes type of movie reel, like a lot of people ask me that. Certainly, I was thinking about my wife. I was thinking about my girls. I was also thinking about what are my colleagues going to say because I'm going to be late for the meeting. I was worried <laughs> about that. It's crazy as yeah. that crazy thought. Like, why are you even thinking that? I can look back now and just really wonder. But that's what I was concerned about because I didn't want them to judge me because, you know, I was dealing with a lot of stuff inside. But I really was. I was angry because. I was following the script. I was doing exactly what a good little citizen should be doing. And the script just got changed on me. And no one told me it was going to get changed. At least that's what I thought in the moment. Yeah. And you also mentioned judgment there. And that was something that I very much identified with because my surgeon had to tell me over the phone that I had cancer because I was just not going to come in to do a follow-up appointment. I was too busy. I needed to do these trials and I didn't want to be judged for, you know, not working my behind off like everybody else was and not making time for these doctor's appointments that seemed, you know, unimportant when I needed to do this job and feeling that moment when I have that information that I had cancer, but not even being able to process it saying, no, I still need to do my job and make sure that I'm following everything I need to do to take care of this trial and hand it over. Then I can take care of myself. 
like this fear of judgment that I think so many of us struggle with without recognizing it. Can you explain a little bit about your feelings and maybe experiences with that? Yeah, so grateful that you just shared that, Dina, because it gets into also just the value of self-care and how when we feel like we're going to get judged, we don't want to get judged as like not working hard or being lazy. And then what we do is we think it's tough to basically not invest in self-care for ourselves, like going to the doctor that we need to go to, doing that follow-up. And early in my career, I would do the same thing. I wouldn't go to the doctor. I blew past all the signs that I think the universe or whomever was trying to send me. I blew past them. I didn't even really see them because I had my head down, just like on my hamster wheel grinding away and not investing in self-care. So the judgment piece, you know, I really, you know, some of it came from a little imposter syndrome or maybe a lack of confidence, you know, again, trying to put that mask and armor on like, I'm all that. I'm good. I'm fine. You know, I have this title, I got to behave a certain way, I have to behave as the script demands, right, that this title, this person sort of carries himself or herself this way. But I would say going back to even some of the like, post traumatic seventh grade moments, right, of not fitting in or feeling judged, you know, sometimes those stay with us. If we don't learn how to process them and let those go, we bring those forward into our adult lives. And so then we're trying to chase this feeling of acceptance as, as far as like we belong and not necessarily having that balance where we're like, yeah, we do fit in. You know, we're part of this community. We're part of this community because we're another human being and we're connected that way. So I worried about that a lot privately, though, and I would never want to share it with people. I was just like, I got this covered. I'm going to be able to handle it. I got this. I don't need help. Because back then I thought asking for help guys are sort of guilty of this from time to time, but asking for help was a sign of weakness. This is before we met Brene and a whole bunch of other wonderful personalities out there and researchers. But I thought if you asked for help, it was a sign of weakness. And if you were weak, then you didn't have the jets for the job. What I realize now, asking for help is really an action that brings you closer to people. It builds community. It builds relationships. And it has nothing to do with how strong you are or how weak you are. It's really about your openness to say, hey, I want to learn and I want to connect with you. I want to get a little bit closer to you. But I was not in that mindset before my accident. I recognize that I was not in touch with any of the emotions that you just went through that I had zero connection with my emotions. And I can't imagine that I'm alone in that, that there are so many people out there who are completely disconnected with any emotions that are going on in them. And it takes that moment in time when you are just rock bottom. For me, it was cancer. For you, your last bad day. But you know what's so admirable about what I think you're doing, and I'm trying to do this too, is try to get people to connect with what's going on in their lives so that they can recognize their feelings to recognize what's happening in their life right now and not have to face something like that. So can you kind of put a voice to what you do with the people that you work with in corporate situations? Yeah, I would love to. Because coming out of my ICU stay, you know, after that first surgery, I spent four days in the ICU. And I, as I came out of the ICU, I learned about the, the extent of my injuries and also just the driver. He had a revoked license. He wasn't supposed to be driving. 
And when the doctors painted a picture for me that life was going to be full of dependency and limitations and more pain and suffering, I went darker. I told myself or made a commitment that I was going to live life differently. I would stop chasing happiness. I wanted a different life if I lived. Well, I knew coming out of the ICU, I was going to make it. But they were painting a picture like how you're going to make it going to be completely different than how you think you were going to. So I went darker. And this gets into choice, right? So it's a choice to be aware. It's a choice to sort of pay attention to your emotions. And still at that moment in time, I wasn't aware. I was sort of letting the tail wag the dog. And I went to a dark place. What I realized going into my recovery a bit deeper, and when I finally came back to New Jersey, that I knew I had to get my mind right if I wanted to get my body right. You know, so often, you know, we talk about like, we're going to worry ourselves sick. And I was like, well, if you can worry yourself sick, why can't you think yourself well, right? The whole mind-body connection is a powerful one. And I knew that I had to shift my mindset if I wanted to basically shift the health of my body. And so what I do now with corporate executives is trying to bring more awareness into how they show up at work. Call it mindfulness, that point of awareness of like what's happening and also maybe why it's happening. Like why are certain people in our lives, like why is this struggle front and center for us? Also the value of acceptance because early on I was arguing with reality. Like I wanted things privately to be different. And then I had to realize like I got hit. This is real. It's like this, right? This is what happened. I can spend a whole bunch of energy and calories trying to wish it was different, but I had to finally figure out, I had to accept what was or what is before I can move forward. So with a lot of my executives, we work on awareness, we work on acceptance. So then eventually we can get to a different type of action, you know, an action that allows them to shift their perspective and on what they see and how they think which then allows them to build greater connection at work. Because ultimately, any leader has to get things done through others. So we need connection. We need strong relationships in order to build like a really valuable tribe or culture, or my language, like a valuable Peloton in the work community. I'm looking at your book. I have a bunch of things tabbed. Oh, wow. It's like you got... (laughs) Yeah, see, you're like... Holy cow. I love that. When I can, I like to read books, you know, for the authors that I talk to because it gives insight for me into how your brain works. I'm fascinated by the brain and how we process things and some of the misinterpretations that our brain makes when we're young and that we carry on throughout our lives. All the storytelling, right? All the storytelling. And so I was looking through here and seeing all of those things that I've been learning over the years that you've clearly gone through everything. And then the mindset shifts that you had to make to get from that point of being in control and not asking for help and moving towards this more open, vulnerable space that anyone who's a lawyer in corporate America or anything, we are told, do not be vulnerable. You have to have an armor up or people are going to take advantage of you, that you are not going to be taken seriously, that your life is going to fall apart back to that point of control. So I know you had your last bad day, but where do you feel that you hit that point? There's so much that happens between then and processing what happened and processing that something different needs to happen in your life. What was it that really inspired you to say, you know what, I can change my mindset about this. Was there anything that really inspired you to just do things differently? 
Yeah. So there was one moment during a rehab session where I looked around and was asking this question, like, why are some people getting better faster than me? So again, it was a little bit of comparison, even in that moment, right? So I suffered a little bit from comparisonitis, like what do I have and versus what everyone else had. So the moment was triggered by why are some people getting better faster than me? And then I realized, well, their mindset is different about whatever injury that brought him into Kessler's Institute for Rehabilitation. So in that moment, I knew I had to shift my mindset. But for me, as you read, it wasn't a light switch moment. It wasn't linear. It was like, I made that commitment to like, all right, the next day, I'm going to start my new routine. I did make a commitment that July 11th would be my last bad day. I found gratitude because I realized, well, I still had a bunch of things I could still do in my life, micro as they may have been in that moment. I still had aspects of my life that I could be grateful for. And if I have gratitude in my life, then I can certainly put that last bad day as my last bad day. So that was the day where I decided to say, okay, we're going to do this differently. But it was choppy and wonky from that day, even to today. Now, I had challenging moments. I had some challenging days. But at the end of every day since that point in time, I knew if I had my daughters in my life, if I had my wife in my life, then how could I ever call that day a bad day? Like I still had the people who love me around me. And so if you have community, then I find it hard to say, I'm going to label that as a bad day. But I certainly have had those challenging moments, those sad moments. I've had some ups and downs. And what I do believe in is that you know change happens. I know we're all looking for the big hack and the big secret and the magic beans or the magic wand or the shortcut. But change happens when we show up with awareness and mindfulness and we make those micro adjustments and we work hard on those and have some discipline on those day in and day out. And we string together a few days, which then strings together a few weeks and then a few months. And then we look back and we're like, oh, wow, we're making a lot of change. So like even to today, like I wake up today with intentionality to say, I'm going to work hard today. That work ethic is still there. I'm not going to like dampen that with any of the people I touch. So we're going to work hard, but we're going to work hard on the things that truly matter who we want to become, how do we want to change lives out there? What's the ripple effect that we want to sort of cast out into society and work on that stuff. And that's going to help us create a better tomorrow. And then the next day, we're going to do it again, you know, with intentionality, because we get another crack at this. And even if the other day wasn't perfect, because some days aren't, we can choose our labels. One of the things I learned through my recovery is that all the events in our lives are neutral until we label them. But we're so damn quick to label them in today's society. We label them as good or bad or right or wrong. And we don't pause long enough to say, well, maybe there's a different way of looking at that day. Or maybe there's a different way of looking at the situation or this case. And maybe I just want to spend an extra second just thinking about, is there a different perspective? And with that, that can trigger or spark better conversation. And we can get curious with each other. And maybe we see someone else's point of view. Or maybe we just see a different point of view in ourselves. And then with that, maybe a different option. And then hopefully more success and perhaps more happiness. Oh, there's so much that you just said right now that I want to unravel. Okay. So I think that what you said about showing up every single day and that there's bumps along the road is so important for people to hear because 
when we are stuck in that place of feeling like we need to control, that we need to show up in a certain way to give an impression because we fear judgment, we are saying that everything needs to go according to plan. We can have a plan. We can have thoughts about a plan, but we show up and we have to let go of some of that control that we've cultivated over the years because we don't have control over everything and we are going to quote unquote fail. The big thing is, and it sounds so trite, me saying this out loud, is like we have to get back up and we got to just keep plugging along and showing up every single day, doing our best, knowing that we're doing the best that we can in that moment. But if we don't like just show up, if we don't just ask for help, if we don't do the things that are uncomfortable, if we're not doing things that stir up all those emotions that we're scared to have because they don't feel quote unquote good, then we're never going to make that progress. We're never going to get out of that trap of that false thought of having control. And when we let go of some of that, it feels good, but we don't know enough. I think this is my personal opinion. We're not taught that when we're young. And so we never recognize that to open up about our feelings, to loosen up a little bit about this thought about control, that we're ever going to get to any other place of success or happiness if we just work from that place of alignment and act out of what is going to be the next best step for me right now. Yeah, I love what you just said. And I think this whole control thing, there's a great, I think, tie into one of our greatest addictions that we have as a society that we don't talk about all that much. You know, we talk about obviously pain med addiction, which is obviously in the news, but we also have this addiction to being right. (laughs) And in ways we look at the world through like a scarcity lens. So in order for me to win, Dina, you have to lose. And sometimes in life, those situations do pop up. We have it in sports, right? So one team's going to be the winner and one team's not. And sometimes in law, you have that too. Sometimes there's compromise, but with this sense of like, we have to be right. And therefore we have to control it in order to be right. And we either lose atrophies or we never develop it. And I think it's more about we never develop it when we're younger. So we can have a vision for our future. We can have goals, those big, hairy, audacious goals. We can have all that. And we can have a plan. We can be prepared and we're going to go forward and execute our plan. But we have to have enough agility to shift our perspectives, to have the resilience that if we get knocked down, we can get back up again and moving again, but maybe moving in a different direction. The whole notion of control for me is I realized once I gave up control, I had more control. You know, think about for corporate leaders who are in this command and control type of approach, right? The old way of leading that is slowly but surely dying. I'm much more of a believer of a command and collaborate model. And so for me, the difference between the two, so command and control is like that are like, I'm in charge. There's hierarchy. I'm the alpha. Do as I say. I'm in control. And what happens is the people around you are not really all that engaged and they end up leaving. The command and collaborate suggests that in some situations, you do want to have command. In some situations, you are in more of a telling mode of how we're going to do things. There's this pathway. The collaborate suggests, though, that we also have plenty of room, more room than we ever realized, to co-create and to give up control and let other people voice their opinion, uh, to see other people, to bring a greater sense of belonging, to ask questions for which we don't know the answer, to be curious, to have all those wonderful things. 
where we get to create the solutions for today's problems. So having that agility between the two, command and collaborate, I think is really a great sweet spot for not only leaders and lawyers, but just people to live their lives because ain't no way we're going to control everything. You know, we both have learned that through our experiences. You got to give up control in order to have more of it. I want to just move into some things that we talked about previously that I know that you'll be able to give our listeners in terms of adding that extra bit of perspective to their lives right now and being able to start to move into this area of awareness that we've been talking about. And we've already talked about taking that moment to see a different perspective. Even if you are so far against it and you want to say, oh, heck no, I am not having nothing to do with that perspective. That's fine. But before you say words, (laughs) maybe take a step back, take a breath and actually recognize that person's perspective, whether or not you agree with it. If there's anything you want to add to that, I definitely want to hear that. Yeah, I know. I love it because we have that today in today's society, right? We're sort of all shouting at each other. We're talking about each other and we're not talking with each other. So there's real value in one, just the whole concept of conversational intelligence of listening to connect and understand each other. And so you have to be really present and just soak in what people are saying and maybe not saying through tone and body language to make that great connection. And also have some acknowledgement, like we play back what we heard. Because right now, like, I think people are shouting more because they don't feel like they're heard. So then we get into this whole listening to reply thing, our lives on social media at work. So being an active listener, having acknowledgement, validating that they have every right to a perspective, even though it could be completely foreign to our perspective, is a good place to start and then start asking some really great questions. So that little acronym is called LAVA. So listen, acknowledge, validate, and then ask. But ask questions that are curious. Maybe you don't know the answer to that. You want to explore. And another little acronym, Dina, that I can give your listeners is grabbing a PBR. For me, I came up with this as a a way to just have like a micro dose of mindfulness throughout the day. And for me, PBR stands for pause, breathe, and reflect. So when we have these moments where we can feel the stress or building in our body, whether it's in our chest or in our throat or in our stomach, those butterflies, when we feel the stress sort of building up, we just hit the pause button and we just connect with our breath. You know, just a simple inhale, count of four, exhale, count of six for a minute or two. And that just gives us a chance to sort of renew and reset. And the reflect piece, which can also be just relax. The reflect piece is, okay, what do I want to say next? What do I want to do next? What's my next action? And if we can slow down together, I think we can be more thoughtful with one another. We can build better connections. In a lot of ways, if we slow down, we can probably go a bit faster because we're in such this reactive mode and we're on our phones and we're going from meeting to meeting to meeting. We're never really just breathing and thinking about, okay, what's the ripple that we want to put out there in the world? You know, what's the weather that we want to create? And I think if we spend just a little bit of time, not a whole bunch, but just a little bit more time than we're doing today, we can really change our environment, change our community. I want to share something so that people who think like, oh, Dina just must be so Zen all the time. Like if they don't know me, it's like, <laughs> it's like I want them to know that this is not easy. And I had something come up just yesterday. I was in court and I'm in a 
court where I am negotiating cases. There's a million things going on. There's different thought processes that are going on with me, including what's the age of the case? Do I need to get this case moved along? Or is this something that can continue? Does it need to resolve at this early resolution stage? Or does it need to be set for trial so that we can just move it along its path? And just to give people some perspective, I have a judge. I have two interns that I'm training to my left. I have defense attorneys lined up behind me. I've got defense attorneys waiting. There's people in the audience. And I've got about 100, 150 cases in front of me that I need to evaluate and work through all within this morning period. And so I had a defense attorney who came up to me who is trying to continue a case that needed to be, I wanted to have set for trial quite some time ago, but I allowed some continuances. And he was standing in for another attorney because she was ill. And I could feel his energy. And he has this energy that's very intense, you know, like, I got to get this done. I got to get this going. I, you know, and he holds on very tight. And I absorbed some of that energy. Like I could feel it, you know. And so it's really easy to take on that vibe of the people around you. And most people aren't doing this kind of work, I got to say. Yes. It's not where I'm working. No. Uh, you know, so. Not New York either. Like. <laughs> so, you know, you know that this is going to come up. Like this is not easy work. So we kind of got into it and we were like head to head on it. I'm just like, no. And I'm trying to get this as short a continuance as possible. And he's huffing and puffing. And I'm just like, what the hell just happened? So then <laughs> he walks off and I have a moment to breathe. So I get up. And I go over him and I say, hey, is everything okay? And he's like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. And I say, look, I know you're doing the best that you can right now. This was my perspective on what was going on. And I explained to him why I didn't want to continue it out as far as he wanted to continue it to. I understand you're doing the best you can. I get it. you know. And I may not have had that Zen vibe about when I said it, but I did the best that I could. And I think it kind of smoothed out a little bit, you know, that energy. But the important thing is, is that we make an effort. And we're not always going to be successful at this work. We're, we're going to just do the best that we can. And we'll get better about it over time. I don't want anyone to hear this and say, oh, I just suck at this. <laughs> you know, like this is work. That is such sound advice because it is work and we're human and we're going to feel emotions. And I feel them all the time. You know, when I talk to my clients and others is that it gets to this whole concept of I don't want five bad minutes to last any minute longer than it needs to. And, but so often we have five bad minutes, that situation that you just shared, it can ruin a whole day. It can ruin a whole weekend because we don't let it go. And as we work on this stuff, I think what people will find is that it's easier to shift. They can make the shift faster. So maybe in the beginning, five bad minutes ruins a half a day. It goes a little bit longer than the five minutes. So maybe it ruins a day, maybe it ruins a half day, but then over time, then it just ruins maybe an hour. And then maybe it's like you get to a point where it's just five rough minutes and you go back to your work that you're able to recognize it sooner, shift out of it faster. Certainly, I have things that trigger me all the time. I was just sharing with a client yesterday a story about something that triggered me over the Memorial Day holiday. And it's not necessarily like rough and gruff and temper, but I was in my own head. And when you're in your own head, you're not able to connect with others. You're not able to do the work that you're designed to do. So I have them all the time. Over my period since my last bad day, I've been able to work on the inner work, if you will, so I can recognize those moments faster and then I can shift out of them even more quickly than I did yesterday. 
And I think that's some of the discipline that we all need. But yeah, it's not easy. It's really human to have all of our emotions swirling around. And neither you, me, or anyone out there, not all Zen-like, because mm-hmm. we're all waking up and we're all trying to like figure out, you know, call it a journey, call it whatever, how to like go down this journey together on this wonderful planet of ours with a whole bunch of different perspectives. So we are going to be naturally triggered by some things in our lives. It's just, you know, the real question is, how do you want to deal with it? I want to talk to you about how draining calling ourselves busy is. Yes. Talk to us about that and maybe give some tips surrounding that to help our listeners. Well, so (laughs) I was just this morning before we got on, I was talking to a client. I was like, hey, how's the week? And she was like, busy. (laughs) And I hear it a lot when I go into my companies too. There's this whole battle of busy going on. It goes back to, I don't want to be judged, right? There's a little bit of judgment thing going on with this. It's like everyone's busy and we're all trying to, one, we don't acknowledge each other's busyness. You know, we'll go to a colleague, hey, how are you doing? I'm busy. Oh yeah, I'm so busy too. And now we're trying, no pun intended, trying to trump our busyness. And the only person that really wins that is probably the CEO or president of the company. I much rather have people think about being active as opposed to busy, and then active on the things that truly matter. But that doesn't sound important enough if I say, no, it I'm doesn't. active right now. Does, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, because that, that's the whole thing. Like I could be doing important work. So a big thing I love having people do is, is reframing their days and using their morning rituals to do that. You know, smartphones are basically everything for us now. We use them, you know, obviously to communicate and to do social, but they're also our alarm clocks. We wake up to our phones and they're right by our bed. And it's so tempting to hit the alarm and then check email or check social. And that automatically frames our day in terms of what we missed and what we need to do. And it gets into FOMO and just we're on the hamster wheel before we even really get out of bed. So I'd much rather have people, if they have to wake up with their phone, I would say go off and buy an alarm clock. It might be better for you and have your phone in another room. But I know that's not reality for most people. So if you're going to wake up with your phone, just wake up with your phone and develop a habit where, you know, you get a nice glass of water, you hydrate first thing in the morning. You might want to move your mind a bit, do a little meditation, do a little mindfulness, just sort of get your mind awake, maybe move your body for a little bit to sort of stimulate that mind-body connection. And then think through, what are the main priorities I have for the day? What do I want to get busy on? So if we don't want to wordsmith it and go from busy to active and we just want to stay busy, let's be busy by design, like busy on the things that truly matter. Because so often busy is like frenetic, like we're doing all these different things. We're not getting anything done where we're scrambling and we don't feel any sense of accomplishment. And the thing is, when we get things done, it helps us change our self-narrative. We develop greater confidence. We believe that we can do bigger things tomorrow than we did today. So. I love when my clients just sort of spend five minutes really deciding, okay, what are the five, three to five big priorities, the big rocks I want to move in the course of the day? Those are my priorities that I'm going to put a disproportional amount of energy to or resources or time or what have you. Certainly, they're going to do more than that, but we're going to put more focus on those things. So we can be busy, but busy on the things that truly matter. There was one part in your book where you're talking about after your accident. 
And you mentioned, you know, visualization, like just kind of like recognizing what needs to be done today, the most important things that need to be done today. So you're acting out of alignment. And you mentioned that when you were laid up in the hospital, you imagined yourself getting back up on the bike, you envisioned yourself back at work. So what role does visualization have in your life? I know some people hear the word visualization and they think woo woo, but yeah, this is the hippy dippy part of our episode, right? So, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's what people think when they think visualization, I think they automatically go to that book that was quite popular called The Secret years ago and, you know, manifesting stuff. So for me, visualization, you know, to make anything happen, you need to put in the hard work. So certainly like work ethic is still an important part of who I am. And it's also an important part of who my clients are. But I want to be able to see what I'm shooting for. So one of my very favorite athletes is Lindsay Vaughn. So mm, yeah. she's, she's now retired, but she is so cool and such an accomplished champion. But when you would watch Lindsay before her Olympic runs or her World Cup runs, She'd be up on top of the mountain with her eyes closed, really skiing the run. And she would ski the run multiple times before she actually did the run. And what she was doing is she was getting prepared. She was skiing the course. She knew every turn, every twist, every bump, every dip. And in some ways, laying down a memory for her brain because she wanted her mind memory, her muscle memory to be there. And so the brain's pretty fascinating. It doesn't necessarily know if you're doing it or not doing it. And so she would spend a whole bunch of time visualizing her success on the mountain. And I took that same type of approach. And it's not just sitting there wishing that something's going to happen. I believe in, you know, if you're going to be something, you got to be able to see it in yourself. And I would spend that time in the morning just sort of framing my day and visualizing how I wanted to show up. Yes, visualizing myself back to work, back on the bike, and then putting the right action behind that. Going back to busy, just being busy on the things that truly matter to help me reach that vision. So visualization, I think, is so key. You can use some wordsmithing there. That's just visualization. But ultimately, whether you call it manifestation, call it the secret, call it visualization, you need to put in the effort as well. So you just can't sit in your bedroom and just wish that it's going to happen or create a vision board and think it's going to happen. You got to put a little sweat equity in it if you're going to make it happen. Yeah, there's a lot of critique around that because it wasn't mentioned in that book. They didn't talk about the action component, which I mean, everybody listening here is really great at the action. Like, let's face it, like we are great at getting stuff done. Yeah. But to get so mindful about it that you're thinking through how you want your day to go, how you want to feel, and focusing on those actions that are in alignment with the results that you want to get, that's where we need more help. (laughs) So that is exactly what visualization gives us, gives us focus. It gives us focus and it gets us off the hamster wheel. I mean, that's the thing that so many people today are on. They wake up, they grab their phone, they're into email, they're rushing, they got their coffee, they're doing emails, they're on a teleconference, they're going, 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 going on the hamster wheel all day long. And when the day is over, they've spent all their energy at work, and now they're bringing the leftovers home to the people that they care about most. You know, their family at home, their friends that they want to go out with, they're just exhausted, they're drained. And then they hit it again before bedtime, like got to get more emails done. And yes, things are active. Things are busy in today's world. And I'm not suggesting that we should all just like chill out and be lazy. We got to have purpose-driven work. But Although lazy is good too. You can be yeah, lazy. It's okay. Yeah. yeah. I think like recovery, I think is a big part of this, right? I think 
Stress is sort of has a bad PR agency. Stress in the right amounts is good. It gets us going. It gets us moving. We go to spin class. We go to Soul Cycle, or you know, we buy a Peloton bike, which is different than my company. We do all these exercise classes to create stress. That's how our body gets stronger. So stress in the right amounts is really good. I think one of the big things that we run into today is our lack of recovery. Like we're on this like high pace all the time without any recovery. And if we stay on that pace for too long, that's when we get disengaged with our work, we get sick, relationships break up, you know, just a different version of like pouring the stress inside. So we need recovery, we need effort, but we also need to have some awareness and some thoughtfulness about how we want to live our day. How do we want to show up at work outside of just being on the hamster wheel? The last thing that I want to really talk to you about is one of my favorite topics, which are words and specifically the conversations that we're having with ourselves, the words that we use with ourselves. Can you talk a little bit to that point? Yeah. So I think that's the biggest thing that gets in all of our ways. You know, someone asked me yesterday, what are your clients dealing with? And I work with executives and I also work with their direct reports or the direct reports of their direct reports. And you and I are also in different communities, whether it's online or just professionally. And the common link that we all struggle with is that voice in our head. It's the one thing that we don't want to talk about. There's no corporate workshop about, hey, I just want to raise my hand and I got this like imposter syndrome going on. I got this little inner critic or gremlin or I think Seth Godin calls it the lizard brain. We have all these different names for it, the monkey in our mind. It's so common. We all have it, but we don't want to talk about it. And it's the thing that is the common link between a CEO to a lawyer to a junior employee to the person on the street is that we get into these storytelling and the stories that we tell ourselves that we're not enough. It gets into shame. It gets into worry about things in the past or regret. It gets into like anxiety or fear about the future and it hijacks us. And the brain story designed this way to sort of keep us alive. So some of our storytelling is a protective tactic to say, hey, you know, don't go out there. Don't put yourself out there. Let the resistance that Stephen Pressfield writes about in the war of art, let that win. So it's all designed to like to hold us back as a way to feel safe. But the professionals and the people out there that are doing amazing work, that's, they're changing more lives, will dance with the resistance, will play with that emotional labor and realize that that's just a story and that, that we have value that we can be present and we can get past that resistance, you know, sort of like as, you know, Brene Brown would share, it's vulnerable, right? A vulnerable moment to realize that, you know, we have that little critic in our head and the courage to move beyond it. And we all need a little bit of that. And that's why having a strong community is so important that when we don't see it in ourselves, that hopefully we surround ourselves with people who see it in us. And they can help remind us that we have a lot of power and agency within us in those moments where we might forget that we actually do have that power within us. And I think that's why coaching is so important. And I think it's so valuable. It's underutilized in our world, really, because I think every person should have a coach to see those voices that are going on in our brain. I could talk about this forever. This was a really great conversation. I love this. I know. The next time I come out to California, we'll get together in person and do this and talk. Yeah, we could spend a whole day on this. Yeah, these are just all the topics that I wish somebody had touched on before day one, you know, of high school. 
you know, like, hey, this stuff exists. It's real. Okay, Michael, can you tell everybody where they can learn more about you? And, you know, of course, I'm going to link to everything in the show notes and, you know, whatever you want to say, it's closing notes right now. So the best way to find me is to go to michaelobrienshift.com. That's my website. There, they can check out my memoir where all the proceeds go to charity. They go to World Bicycle Relief and they help girls conquer the challenge of distance by giving them mobility. And I give to that cause because I lost my mobility for a spell during my recovery. And I want the book to power others. So the really cool thing is people read the book. They get some wisdom, maybe some inspiration, but they're changing someone's life halfway around the world because every book that we sell helps build a bicycle, which is really cool. Uh, so they can learn about Shift there. They can also sign up for my blog and take a little quiz that I have around our money language, right? We know about love languages, but what's our wealth language? And they can also pull down a, a free resource on building their community or building their Peloton, as I like to say, like the people in their lives that can help them both professionally and personally. But that's uh, michaelobrienshift.com. That's probably the best way. And then there's all that like LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram type of stuff too. All that kind of stuff. Okay, I'll be sure to put that in there too. It was so great to be on. And I hope that your listeners got a few pearls from our conversation. And and I would just you know let them know to keep pedaling and uh, connect with their breath. And don't let five tough minutes turn into a bad day. You know, it would be really cool is listeners who got something from this, if they could tag me at Dina.Cataldo on Instagram. And do you know your Instagram handle, Mike? Yep, it's uh, Michael O'Brien Schiff. Okay. So if you could put that in there, if you could tag us on Instagram and just take a picture of you listening to the podcast, that would be fabulous. Yeah, that'd be really cool. So thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. And I hope to talk to you soon. Yes. Next time I come out to California, we're going to hook up. I loved having that conversation with Michael and I hope you did too. If you'd like to learn more about his story, you can go to dinacataldo.com forward slash 56 to purchase his book Shift. I especially appreciated the addition of his wife's perspective when he was going through his rehabilitation. The people in our lives are greatly impacted by what happens to us, and it's great to have that addition. It added a little bit more realness and depth, I think, to the entire book. So next week, we're shifting gears, see what I did there, and talking to an artist who actually discovered her true identity with an artistic technique that she's going to share with us. It's something we can do even if we're not artistically inclined. I promise you. I haven't had an artist on the show yet, so I'm excited to share with you her perspective on identity and how we can become more in tune with our intuition by using art. Okay, I will talk to you next week. I hope you have a fabulous day. Bye. Hi, lawyers. If you love Soul Roadmap Podcast, I want to tell you about a couple things that will jumpstart your life. The first is the 10-Day Lawyer Life Detox. We clear out stress and overwhelm in this self-study online coaching program. You can learn more at dinacataldo.com forward slash work with Dina. The second is my signature online group coaching program I do a couple times a year. While the 10-Day Lawyer Life Detox is like a quick refresh, the Lawyer Soul Roadmap is a deep dive. In this 10-week online program, I teach you how your brain works, why you do what you do, and how to reach your goals while creating ease in your life. If you're ready for more, join me at dinacataldo.com forward slash work with Dina. I'll see you there.